when I'm not binge watching Netflix, uh, I occasionally like to watch the BBC. And I don't know whether anybody has seen this programme. It's been on for the last 17 years, and it's, uh, it's called Who Do You Think You Are on the BBC? And the idea is uh, that various celebrities from the world of you know, acting, music, politics, etc., they embark on a, a journey to sort of research their ancestry and their family tree, and in doing so, they discover surprising stories along the way uh, about their families, stories of courage and sorrow, uh, joy, sacrifice, resilience, romance. Uh, and it's, it's quite an inter interesting and entertaining kind of program, so I'm told. Uh, I actually have never watched it myself. Uh, but I did do some research this week. So Daniel Radcliffe of Harry Potter fame, he was on there. He discovered that his... Uh, that a robbery of his great-granddad's jewellery business was actually far more dark and sinister than first thought of. And he also discovered that a, a great-grand-uncle had a, a heart-wrenching kind of love story during World War I. Uh, then David Walliams of um, Britain's Got Talent fame, he discovered that performing and entertaining went way back in his family before he was born. Other celebrities have discovered that they... Their family members were either slaves or former slaves. Some of them were murderers. Some of them were criminals who'd spent time in prison. But my favourite one is that EastEnders actor Danny Dyer discovered that he was related to Prince Edward III, making him 110,000th in line to the throne. So there we go. So not only is he the landlord of the Queen Vic, but he thinks he is, should be royalty. Now this morning, we come to our own biblical episode of Who Do You Think You Are? And you find that in Ruth chapter 4. And what we're going to discover as we study the book of Ruth together this month, that we're going to discover a surprising story of tragedy and death, of radical consecration, of loyalty, of redemption, of romance. And the subject of the episode is David. Now... Ruth chapter 4 highlights his family tree for us, so let's begin by reading there, and then we'll wind back like they do in Who Do You Think You Are, and tell the story of his ancestral family. So this is how it goes. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Aminadab, and Aminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, and Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now, why begin with David when the book is called Ruth? Well, hopefully we'll answer that question as we go along. But Ruth, the book of Ruth is named after one of the main characters in this story. She is a Moabite. That means she's a pagan. She's not Jewish. She lives outside of Jerusalem and she does not worship Yahweh. And she eventually gets married to a man named Boaz who is from Bethlehem and she is the great grandma to King David. Now you might be familiar with the book of Ruth and at first glance it's a lovely, heartwarming, beautiful masterpiece of storytelling as the narrator in four densely packed chapters oozes charm of this love story between this woman and a man called Boaz. It's, cl it's clear, it's short, and it's engaging. And so hopefully this month you'll be able to read it repeatedly and then come and discuss it with us at the beginning of June. 
It's a love story about kindness and generosity, but such a simplistic reading of the story of Ruth in just those categories will miss much of what the author and the narrator is intended to do. If you think about it, you should read it really with with one eye on one screen and one eye on another screen. So if you can split your gaze onto a kind of a split screen reading, that's the best way to read Ruth. Because what you'll find is that on one level, there's this kind of plain and straightforward drama of human choice and decisions and actions and coincidences that happen. And then on another level, on another screen, if you like, there's this beautiful subtlety that Ruth uh, contains, where it instructs the reader concerning the hidden but ongoing good providence of God in the life of ordinary people. In Ruth, you'll find no supernatural events, you'll find no angelic appearances, and you'll find no miracles. But what you will find, if you're attentive to the reading, is that God is guiding the events of Ruth as much as he guides the events of the Exodus out of Egypt. And Ruth reveals far more to us about God than its small size might suggest. So let's go back to chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and we'll read together the words of the narrator. And this is how he sets the scene. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, we just did the book of Judges last month, didn't we? So that's not just a timestamp telling us that this story is 3,000 years old, but that is a theological description that tells us of the sad state of Israel that forms the backdrop to this story. In the days that the judges ruled. The book of Judges, as we saw last month, is some of the darkest and bleakest days of Israel's history. As people completely lose the plot, they free fall in a kind of a downward spiral of moral and spiritual wickedness and evil, doing what was right in their own eyes. So that's the backdrop. But then the narrator continues. And there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi... And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea, or Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these two took uh, Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Marlon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So set the scene. In the middle of the darkest days of Israel's history, we're introduced to a family of four. A husband and wife and their two young sons who live in Bethlehem when a famine hits the land. And Elimelech, the husband, decides that in the face of famine, it would be better to up sticks and move to Moab... uh, So so to leave the promised land and to go to a neighbouring enemy pagan nation that was renowned for its wickedness and immorality. And you can see the kind of thing that happens when you do what is right in your own eyes. This is an example of what Judges says. Elimelech, his name means, my God is my king. And yet he doesn't behave like that. 
he gets up and decides to take his family from God's promised land to try his luck in Moab. He's doing what is right in his own eyes. And yet, as we know from the book of Judges, when you do what is right in your own eyes, it only and ever always leads to disastrous consequences. And chapters one, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, is like a catalogue of misery. So there's a famine in the land, so they go to Moab, then Elimelech dies. His two sons marry foreign Moabite women, which was definitely frowned upon in the Old Testament. Then after 10 years of barrenness and childlessness, these two sons die, and then Naomi is left as an aging widow, bereft of children, bereft of grandchildren. She's destitute and she's hopeless. She's living in exile in a foreign land, away from her God. It's pretty disastrous when you do what is right in your own eyes. And chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, tell us what's going on in her heart as well. Because not only are there external pressures and circumstances that are affecting her, but you see from chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, when she says to some women on her return to Bethlehem, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi means pleasant or sweet. Isn't that right, Naomi, at the back? Yes. It means pleasant or sweet. But she says, no, call me Mara or Mary, which means bitterness. So she's angry and she's bitter at God at how her life has turned out. But there is a glimmer of hope. Naomi hears that there's food again in Bethlehem. So she returns to Israel and her daughter-in-law, one of her daughter-in-laws, Ruth, is amazingly loving, amazingly kind, amazingly loyal and devoted to her. And she pledges to go with Naomi and to worship Naomi's God. And so they set off for Israel with these words in verse 16 and 17, ringing in our ears, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. And where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me and more so, if anything but death parts us beautiful words so these two widows they set off for Bethlehem to a new life and Ruth is wondering when she gets there what's going to be for tea what are we going to eat and so chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 now Naomi had a relative of her husband a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favour. So, in a land and a time without welfare and social security benefits, the Old Testament prescribes a practice called gleaning, where the poor people, orphans, widows, uh, foreigners, could follow behind the labourers in a field and collect up the scraps and the leftovers that they had left behind after harvesting the crops. It was hard work and it was hot work and it was certainly dangerous work for women in particular, but it allowed the poor and the widow and the needy to feed themselves and sustain themselves and their families. And so Ruth goes to the field of a man called Boaz. And there she encounters this man. And we, he's described as a worthy man. He's described as a relative of Naomi's deceased husband. And while he's there surveying his fields and surveying his laborers and, and all the farmhands and the work that's going on, his eyes fall upon Ruth. And she captures his gaze and his attention. And so he initiates this conversation with her. He tells her that he's heard a report about how, <coughs> excuse me, how kind and how loving and how devoted and loyal she has been to Naomi. And that's impressed him. 
And so therefore he wants to do something kind and generous for her. He wants to offer her protection and provision. And so Ruth, that, at the end of that day, returns to Naomi with her stomach full of food and her arms full of grain that Boaz has given to them and her heart full of the, the love and kindness and generosity of Boaz. And then Ruth and Naomi have this conversation where Naomi says, oh, according to Deuteronomy 25, she doesn't actually say that, but that's where you'll find it. According to Deuteronomy 25, Boaz is a man who can rescue us from our poverty. He could be a kinsman redeemer, one who can buy the ancestral land of Elimelech and he can marry Ruth and he can uh, produce an heir for her dead husband. And so at the beginning of chapter three, Naomi's mind goes into overdrive as she hatches a slightly disturbing plan that is pretty risky about how Ruth can woo Boaz. Not something that you would read in a book in our day, I don't think. So she says, get cleaned up, do your hair nice, put on some makeup, wear some expensive perfume, get out your best clobber, dress as nicely as you possibly can, and then go down to the threshing floor, go down to Boaz's farm in the middle of the night for a midnight rendezvous, find him because he'll probably be there with his friends and his co-workers. They'll have had wine to drink, they'll have had good food to eat, and what you need to do is snuggle up close to him and just see what happens. That, that, is that the advice you would give to your daughter-in-law for seeking a husband? Who knows? And so the narrator wants us to feel that tension. He wants us to kind of feel the anxiety of the story. How is this going to work out? Is this God's plan? Isn't this just another example of people doing what is right in their own eyes? We see Naomi taking matters into her own hand and trying to help God out rather than submit herself to the idea and the truth that God always works out his perfect plan in his ways, in his time. Now Ruth, God bless her, trusts Naomi's less than godly plan and she approaches Boaz and makes a marriage proposal to him in verse 9 of chapter 3. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And the chapter that began with this kind of risky strategy to woo Boaz ends up focusing on Boaz's godly character. He lives up to the reputation of being a worthy man. And he agrees to redeem Ruth, but he wants it all done honorably, with integrity, with godliness. And so chapter four then describes really what is the next day. He goes into the city and he is determined to settle the matter and overcome all of the remaining obstacles to redeem Ruth, to make, him, uh, to make her his wife, and to start their own family. And the result is little baby Obed arrives. And he is the granddad of King David. So if this was an episode of Who Do You Think You Are? We'd say, David, listen, mate, you're the great-grandson of a Moabite woman who was barren for 10 years, who then left her home, she left her people, she left her gods to follow a bitter and twisted old mother-in-law into a land far away that was in the middle of its ugliest war-torn period of history. And in doing so, she became one half of an unlikely but beautiful love story with a kindly old successful Jewish farmer. And we're all supposed to read the story and go, Oh, happily ever afters really do happen. 
Isn't that lovely? Now that's all happening on one screen, on one level. So what is God doing on another level? Because he's obviously multitasking here. uh, And he's doing three things, I think. The first one is this. God is overseeing the story. God is overseeing the story. Sorry, these blinds go up and down according to how sunny it is automatically. And so although it's still sunny, they've decided to go up. They do what is right in their own eyes. (laughs) Anyway, God is overseeing the story. The characters in the story, if you notice, right the way throughout the story, they, they speak about God a lot. They speak about God numerous times. They know him and they know something of his goodness and his sovereignty. But I think you find that they have absolutely no idea what that's going to look like. Now the narrator knows things more clearly and he sees footprints and fingerprints of God running throughout the story. And he sees the trajectory of what God is doing to fulfill his good purposes. But only twice does the narrator speak about God. He speaks about God right at the beginning in verse one, uh, chap- sorry, chapter 1, verse 6, where he says this. Naomi arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So right at the beginning, he, book- he puts one bookend in and he says, God is doing something. And then in chapter 4, verse 13, he gives us the second bookend where he says, And Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. son." So the Lord is doing something. The narrator bookends the whole book with these two things. God is doing something. And he's giving us hints and clues that from the famines and funerals in chapter 1 to the weddings and maternity wards in chapter 4 and everything in between, God is overseeing the story. He might be hidden, but he's working. Even in the midst of the darkest days of the judges, even in the blackness and wickedness and evil of all that Israel was doing, God is working in the ordinary lives of ordinary people to bring about his will. And through Ruth... God invites you and me to kind of come up to where he is. Do you remember in, uh, is it Revelation chapter 4, where God invites John, come on up and see what I'm doing. Ruth does that kind of thing as well. God invites us to come on up and see the kind of God that he is and to see the kind of things that this God does so that we can trust him with our own lives. You know, there's so many stories in the Bible about how people... uh, how God is at work overseeing stories so that we can trust him. Because when things happen in our lives and we think, well, what, what is God doing and where is he? And what, what is my story and how is this all going to turn out? He wants us to go to scripture to see, look, he was at work in the ordinary lives of ordinary people. So therefore you can trust him in your ordinary life. Because he uses the same patterns of grace to accomplish his plan in your life as he does in scripture. So we might not be able to perfectly, with, with kind of clarity, determine and understand the hand of God in the circumstances of our lives, far less to see the trajectory that he's taking us in. And, and it's real easy, if you're like me, it's real easy to be like a Limelech, to say, my God is my king, and then do what is right in my own eyes. Or it could be real easy to be like Naomi, to try and second guess God and his plan, and then try and run ahead of him to give him a helping hand. And then actually turn out a bit bitter when things don't go our way. 
You and I don't have access to the blueprints of God's plan. Therefore, we must learn to trust him and obey him and his words of promise to us. And one of the reasons that we can trust him is because of the super abundant evidence in scripture that he is overseeing everybody's story with his all-wise, loving providence. I was reminded of uh, an old hymn uh, by William, is it William Cooper or Cowper? I don't know how you pronounce it. Is it Cowper? I think it's Cooper, although it's spelt Cowper. Anyway, we can argue about his name all all afternoon, but his hymn is better. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. And then he advises us, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And that's what Ruth reminds us of. God is overseeing our story. So what is he doing in any sorrowful or joyful moment of your life? He's overseeing your story. And we must learn to live by faith and not by sight. Now, secondly, he's not only overseeing the story, but he's resolving the story. He's resolving the story. Not just for Ruth and Boaz, but there's a bigger story going on here. So Ruth begins with Naomi, far from home, in Bethlehem, empty, bitter towards God. But it ends with Naomi's story resolved. She's come home with Ruth to a place of God's provision for his people that's richly displayed in the generosity of Boaz. In the final scene, she sat in the maternity ward with a new grandson on her lap and she's surrounded by the women of the town who are full of praise to God for his abundant blessing and the provision towards his needy people that God does and fulfills and provides for generation after generation. And the structure of the whole book of Ruth is to try and help us to see that God resolves people's stories. And it gives a satisfying sense of completeness That God restores that which is broken. That God reorders disorderly lives. That he puts the finishing touches on his work of grace. Ruth is, is supposed to give us a sense that God does all things well. And that, as Paul would later say in Romans chapter 8, he works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. God is at work resolving stories. He, in the book of Ruth, transforms death to life. He transforms barrenness to fruitfulness. He transforms emptiness to fullness. He transforms bitterness to sweetness. He transforms curse to blessing. He transforms alienation and exile to belonging and welcome and family and kingdom. And he blesses Naomi. He blesses Ruth. He blesses Boaz. He blesses the entire community of God's people in Bethlehem. And he will bless the nation through David. And then ultimately through David's greatest grandson, He'll bless the nations. And so when we, whenever we kind of look at our own lives and we ask the question of what is God doing in the most bitter or the most blessed parts of our lives, the answer is this. He's working all things together for the good of those who love him. 
who are called according to his purposes. And he is resolving our stories so that we might be people who receive his abundant provision with praise in our mouths. And then finally, having overseen the story, having resolved the story, God is accomplishing redemption's story. God is accomplishing redemption's story. His good providence is not just seen in the provision of a husband for Ruth or a grandchild for Naomi or food for their stomachs, though those are certainly good things, but there's an even bigger story happening here, a story of redemption. And the word redeem and redeemer and redemption is uh, spoken of 23 times in the book of Ruth in four short chapters because God is redeeming a people for himself from all nations. That begins with Ruth the Moabite who's included in God's family showing us God's redeeming love for the nations. But what you find as the story goes on is that God's redeeming love stretches beyond these two women and it stretches beyond Bethlehem and it stretches beyond Israel and it stretches to the very purposes of establishing a king. And not just David, but a forever king who would live upon the throne, who would be the ultimate kinsman redeemer in whom all those who trust in him will be saved from their desperate position as sinners before a holy God. This small, this story of one small, seemingly insignificant family is actually one of the great building blocks that God is using to direct history towards Jesus. Isn't that amazing? A thousand years before Jesus was born, God is orchestrating a love story between Boaz and Ruth so that David might be born, so that Jesus might come to save us from our sins. And Jesus is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. He is the ultimate worthy man. He is the one who has the ability and the willingness and the resources to work the redemption of sinners, even at great cost to himself. And he accomplished this when he paid the price of his own blood on the cross to forgive all of us who trust in him of our sins. So at any time when you ask, well, what is God doing at any point in any of our stories? The answer from Ruth is this. He is accomplishing redemption story through the gift of his own son. And he's overseeing our stories. He's resolving our stories. And he's redeeming our stories so that we might be like the women at the end of chapter 4. Who come around Naomi and bless the Lord because he has not left us without a redeemer. Let's pray.